Have you ever got a present that was so nice he didn't want to use it? You ever had something like that? A gift that was so nice you thought, what do I do with this thing? It's funny, isn't it? Sometimes people give us gifts and we, 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 we say, thank you, it's so nice, but actually we don't think they're that valuable. Uh, one Christmas when I think I was 15, my dad bought me the, the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. It was so ugly, I almost started crying. I'm not, I'm not joking. It was like, what, what, I can't wear this. It's bad. Other times people have given me things I didn't know what to, how to say thank you. I was so overwhelmed with the thoughtfulness. When I was, uh, uh, I had been a youth pastor for about six years, and, and Sarah and I were getting ready to move to another state to plant a church, and my youth group knew that when I was in high school, as a teenager, I never got a yearbook. You know, do they have those here, annuals? Yeah, yearbooks, they have your pictures, and everybody signs your yearbooks. It's a very American thing to do, and I never got one because I was a heathen and spent all my money on beer. And so basically, they knew that, they knew I regretted that, and so they tracked down my old high school and bought me my senior year yearbook, and all my youth kids signed it. It was awesome. What a, it was a great present. I was so blown away by that. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know how to respond. Yes, I cried. Okay, I cried. I know you're not shocked by that. It's funny how we respond to gifts, isn't it? Even sometimes people offer us gifts, and we think it's so valuable, we say, I can't take that. No, I can't take it. It's too big. We have this weird relationship with, with gifts. We're not sure you know, what we should value, what we shouldn't value, what we should use, what we shouldn't use. And that reality, that, that idea of getting something given to you, it, 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 both, it both confronts our pride and, and, and causes us to feel valued. It's a funny thing, our, our, our relationship with presents. At Christmas, you know, we, we, we were really bad. We stopped doing cards years ago because we just, they kept going later and later, Christmas cards. First it was, you know, beginning of December, then right about Christmas, and then New Year's Day, and then like February, we said, okay, forget it. We're not doing Christmas cards anymore. But we still get loads of Christmas cards, and everyone is appreciated, but everyone makes me feel just a little bit guilty because I think, well, you're giving me this gift, and I didn't give you anything. We have this funny relationship with gifts. And this is, this is interesting because this can carry on into our relationship with God because the Bible teaches really clearly that our relationship with God, our salvation, our eternal position with God is a free gift. Hallelujah. It's a gift. The Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. Now, we heard last week from Adam just about this this reality that, we're, that God's not like us, that we are these broken people, these people that are dead, really spiritually dead, but God has mercy on us. He had mercy on us by sending Jesus. And so Jesus himself really is that gift. Jesus himself really is our salvation. And so we want to make sure that we understand together as a, as a church family that this is a gift that both we have to receive, but also that we have to use. It is of incredible value. It is humbling to think that this is offered to us. It is tempting to push it away or to say, okay, I'll receive it, but not know what to do with it. But we need to understand this great gift we've been giving in salvation in Jesus. Because the truth is, God's given us in Jesus, God's given us all things that we need for this life and the life to come as a free gift. 
And so looking at verse 9, the first thing we see about this gift that must be received is that it's a position that we cannot earn. Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved. That could be translated, you are in a saved state. That you're in this position. And it's a position we can't earn. This is really Paul just kind of unpacking or applying what he had said earlier in, in, in the verses, uh, verses 4 through 6, where he says, listen, but God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ. God's do it, done this for free. We can no more earn our position in the family of God than we can raise ourselves from the dead. It's a gift of God. God gives it to us. It's a position we can't earn. But also, if you look at the second part of verse B, or verse B, sorry, verse 8, it's also, it's a trust that He develops in us. Faith is about trusting a person, the person of God, and He has to develop that in us. Look what it says in the second part of verse 8. He says, we've been saved through faith. In other words, not saved by faith, but through faith. Really important distinction. We're saved by God's grace, His un merited favor on us, but through faith, where we have to receive it by faith. He says, but that is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, the phrase, the gift of God, probably points to our salvation, not necessarily just our faith, okay? So when it says it's the gift of God, it's probably pointing to the fact that we have the salvation. That's the gift, all right? But let's be honest, faith is something that God has to produce in us, isn't it? How does He do that? What does God do? Well, the first thing God does is He makes us aware of the danger that we're in. See, we think about this word saved or salvation, and what does that mean? What does it mean in in normal English? When would we use that term? We only really use the term saved in English like if somebody was like, I was drowning and then the lifeguard came and I was saved. In other words, I was in danger and someone rescued me from danger. And so God wants us to trust Him. He's calling us to to a relationship by faith, a trust relationship. But to do that, he has to make sure we understand what we're in danger of. And there's a funny thing about human nature. No matter how weak we are, we don't want to admit that we're in danger. We are fiercely independent. And we're born that way. This is part of that deadness, that broken nature that that Adam mentioned last week. As you guys know, I have five kids, and I have to say, they, they, they all we're born wanting to live without any parental supervision. <laughs> yes. One of the first things my son Garrett learned to say was, mine. And then when he could put phrase, words together for phrases, I do it myself. Don't need your help, Dad. He still says that. I do it. My, we're like that. We are fiercely independent. No matter how weak or broken we can even know that we are. It's a funny thing. We don't want to admit that we have health. We don't want to admit that we're in as much danger as we are. Now, according to the Scripture, the danger that we're in is a danger of judgment. It's a judgment because God is a good God, and as a good God, He will not let sin or bad continue without dealing with it. You guys have all Either, either ask this question and or heard this question asked of you. If, there's, if God's so a God of love, how can He allow suffering on the earth, right? 
You've thought that, you've heard it, you've had it asked you. Well, this is the point. You're right. If God's a good God, He can't allow suffering. And the news, good news is He's not going to allow suffering. He's going to deal with suffering. He's already done one thing to deal with suffering. We'll talk about that in a second. But He's promised to come back and deal with suffering once and for all. He's going to end all injustice. That's what He's going to do. And we like that when it is injustice done against us. We don't like that when it's the injustice that we've done. And this is part of the danger. We like the idea that there's a, there's a God who, who's ultimately in control and that He's good and that He's going to sort things out down here for us, but we don't like the idea that we're part of the problem. And that's our biggest danger. We're in danger of judgment and we don't even want to admit it. It's a funny thing about human nature. It's a funny thing about human cultures. Every culture understands in some ways right and wrong. Everybody has some sort of code of conduct. It might be slightly different from culture to culture, but we all have a sense, a moral sense that there's right and there's wrong. And here's the amazing thing. No matter what standard you would express for right and wrong, have you noticed that you know, if you're being honest with yourself, if you notice no matter what standard you set for yourself, you never meet that standard? There's something about us that just pushes back against right or wrong, because we'd rather just say, I'm right. I determine what's right or wrong. But even when we do that, we still don't do what's right. There's something so broken about us, something so dead about us, something so twisted and evil about us that we still do what's wrong. In fact, Paul says it this way when he writes to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 2, I'm reading from the New Living Translation because it's like the way it kind of paraphrases this. Listen. He says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law, that would be any of us who aren't Jewish, okay? Even Gentiles who don't have God's written law show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I can proclaim, Paul says, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. This is what the Scripture says. This is the danger that God wants to make us aware of. This is the work of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus said when He sends God His Spirit, the Spirit will convict us of sin and judgment and righteousness. We'll see what we're what our danger is, where our danger is. Now, this is part of how God teaches us to trust Him. Because if we're going to trust Him, guess what that means? We have to learn, if we're going to learn to trust Him, we have to learn to not trust ourselves, that we daren't trust ourselves because we're that broken. But He does something else. He, he, it's a trust He develops in us, listen, because He came as a man, the man Christ Jesus, to identify with our suffering and also to pay for our sins. That's what the Scripture teaches. Here's, here's how we learn to trust God. We trust God because God sent His only Son, and we look at Jesus and we think, okay, if God were to become a man, that would be it. <laughs> he would look like that. He would express that kind of authority. He would show that kind of love. He would stick to that kind of holiness or purity. The Bible says, of Jesus... Because he was a real man. 
I thought I had it on here. Now I can't see it on my notes. Well, the Bible says it in the book of Hebrews. Yeah, there it is. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, Jesus understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to have a standard of right and be tempted not to meet that standard. But every time Jesus was tempted not to meet that standard, guess what he did? He met that standard. He set that standard. But not only that, listen. He didn't just come to say, I know what it's like to go through this life, the trials and the temptations, but also he came for a purpose. The Bible says of him, Paul writes this to the Corinthians, he says, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. How does God teach us to trust him? He shows us we're in danger, but then he shows us Jesus, who saves us from the danger that we're in. Jesus, who knows how hard it is to live this life. Jesus, who lived perfectly so he could be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, who died so that our sins could be taken away and so that he could give us that perfect position that we couldn't earn for ourselves. We've got to learn to trust him. But it's not just that. He's also developing this faith in us, listen, by relating to us as a good father. We sang it today, didn't we? Remember when that song first started getting popular and I first heard it in a worship context? I couldn't sing it. I started crying. I know it's not a big surprise. Again, I cry easy, but still. It's a powerful, simple truth that we have a good Father and we're loved by Him. This is what the Scripture says. Listen. Again, Paul writing to the Romans. He says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. That's not God's spirit. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. And now we call Him Abba Father, for His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Do you understand? This is what God's doing constantly to call you to trust Him. I think we have this picture sometimes wrong, this picture in our head, that God's kind of said, well, I did my bit. I sent Jesus. I sent the apostles. I sent the prophets. I give you the scriptures. Now I'll just wait and see what you do. Are you going to respond? But God is working. If you're here today and you're wrestling with your conscience, you're thinking, man, I don't want to admit that I'm as bad as he says I'm bad. I am. I don't want to admit that. Guess why your conscience is convicting you? Because God's Spirit is saying, listen, you need to understand the danger that you're in if you haven't put your faith in Christ. If you're here today and you're, you're thinking, okay, this Jesus guy is attractive to me. I wanna, I'm intrigued by who he is. I want to know more about him. Well, you're feeling that because God's Spirit is trying to open your eyes to who Jesus is. If you've been walking with God or known at least of God for a while and it's beginning to dawn on you that God really does love you as a good father. That's happening because God's spirit is working in you. See, we do have a choice to make. We choose to trust. We trust is always a choice. It's a relationship. Therefore, as a relationship, it requires a trust and that trust is something that we have to choose to do. We can't be forced to trust. To be forced to trust is not to trust at all. We have to choose to trust, but do you know why we choose to trust? Because God is doing this work 
in us, showing us we have a need, showing us that, we, that Jesus is the answer and showing us that we can be adopted into his family. See, this is the gift that you need to receive, that God's calling you to trust him. Look, if, if, you're, if you're still new to this Christianity stuff and you're thinking, you know, I... I I'm intrigued by Jesus, and I'm just kind of waiting for something to happen. I'm waiting to get zapped. Okay, Jesus, are you real? Zap me, and then I'll believe. You have a choice to make. Can you respond to the light that God's already given you? Are you willing to respond to who Jesus has revealed himself to be? Are you willing to respond to the work of your spirit and admit that, man, it's not flattering, but it's true. I fall radically short. I sin against God and against others, even by my own standards, let alone God's standard. Are you willing to respond to him? Because if you are, guess what? He says there's a position for you in his family. Now, this is important, too, because he goes on to say in verse 9 that this Salvation, this gift of God, listen, it's not of works lest any should boast. So this gift, it's, it's received through a surrender, a surrender to God. All right, God, I don't have what it takes. You have what it takes. A surrender that produces in us a humility. I think the hardest thing about this good news about Jesus is it is, it is so humbling. It's, it, it's, it's really exposing. It's not flattering at all. But it's meant to humble us. It's meant to to get us to a place that we see ourselves for who we are so that we forget about ourselves and say, God, it's not about me, it's about you. It's you I need to trust. See, humility is not necessarily thinking of yourself less or thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's realizing that it's me is not the important one. God's the important one. Jesus is the the one that I need to focus on. I'm not going to trust myself. Like the old hymn says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Trust Him. It's interesting. I can't boast about what I haven't earned, but you know, I can boast about what I know has amazing value. As I did earlier, right? I talked about that, that uh, yearbook that I got from my youth kids all those years ago. I can boast about that. Not like how great I am, they give me a yearbook, but how great that gift is. What a great present. It's still one of my treasured possessions. What a great present. You know, Paul said this, again, this time to the Galatian church. Listen, Paul says, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. Paul saw the cross of Christ where Jesus died as God's instrument for not only his forgiveness, but God's instrument to separate him from a world system that wants to drag him down, from a world system that's broken and damned. The cross separates him from that. He boasts about that. In other words, he's saying, it's not me that's, it's not me and all my great choices that I've made that brings me to this place. It's what God's done for me. It's this great free gift that he's given to me. That's why he glories in the cross. You who are believers, do you believe this? (laughs) Do you understand the power of the cross 
what Christ accomplished for you by dying on the cross. It wasn't just God's wrath being poured out. It was you being crucified with Christ so that you can say, I am dead to sin. I am dead to my old life. I am dead to this world. I don't have to be a slave to people's opinions anymore. Not because I'm so grand or I'm so disciplined, but because Christ was crucified and I've been crucified with Christ. I'm going to boast about that. You go, okay, well, I don't feel that though. Do you believe it? Didn't ask you if you felt it. Do you believe it? If I ask you, do you believe Jesus died for your sins, most of you here, especially if you've been coming to church for a long time, most of you would say, oh, of course, I believe Jesus died for my sins. You just take it on simple faith. Yeah, he died for my sins. I've got to believe that because otherwise I couldn't be right with God. It's the same faith. Do you believe when he died for your sins, he died not just to break the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin? That you don't have to live for yourself anymore. You can learn to live for God because of the cross. Again, guys, this is a gift that we have to receive. It's a gift that causes us to be humbled. It's a gift that puts us in a position that can't be taken from us. It's a gift that, that is, is, is received through surrender. God, I, I don't want to trust anything but you, no one else but you, not myself but you. It's a, it's a, it's a gift of being adopted into his family. See, see, listen, if you've not received Christ yet, if you've not put your faith in who Jesus is and what he's done through his death and his resurrection, why not? What's keeping you from receiving him? Seriously. Do you, do you, have, to, do you have to be convinced? Do you have to have all the answers first? Have you done that in any other relationship in your life? If you're married... Did you find out everything you could possibly know about your spouse before you said, yes, I'll marry you? No. In fact, that's part of the shock of marriage. <laughs> you get married and go, oh my goodness, this is not what I expected. Did, did you know every single thing you could know about the company you worked for before you started working for the company? No. You trusted, based on the information you had, that you are going to sign a contract. Did you ask for a, a CV before you that person that you met at the office and you went out for a coffee with, can I have your CV first? I'd like a, a detailed, I want to know everything I can know about you before we have coffee together. Did you do that? No. Every relationship starts with a minimal trust and grows based on what you can know immediately about that person or that company. So what is it about Jesus that keeps you from saying, Lord, I, I need you? I need you. I need you to save me. I want this free gift of an eternal relationship with you. What keeps you from trusting him? Now, it's a gift that has to be received, but also it's a gift that has to be used because Paul says in verse 10, listen, for we are his workmanship created in, in, in Christ Jesus for good works. Let's talk about this. It's important that we recognize that this gift is not just about a, a fresh start. Hey, you can have your sins forgiven, and things can be better uh, from here on out. Fresh start, start new today. Now, there is truth about a fresh start. The Bible says that God's mercies are new every morning. So in Christ, we can, we can start fresh every day. But the gospel isn't just about a fresh start. It's not about a new start. It's actually about a new creation. 
when, when Paul uses this word workmanship, it's, it can be translated handiwork, it can be translated work of art. It's the Greek word poema. It's where we get the English word poem. Work of art. I like to see this more as like a tapestry. That God's, he's, he's weaving this amazing tapestry. And the thing is, because we're part of that tapestry, our perspective isn't always as, as good as it needs to be. And even maybe God pulls us back. We don't, we don't see the finished product. We kind of just see the back of the tapestry. It looks like a bunch of random threads just thrown together. But God is weaving something radical together in our lives. He's doing something in us that we don't fully understand, but we know what it leads to. We know that He's leading us or making us like Christ. In fact, it's important to recognize this is a work that God's doing. It's, it's, it's a work that God's done. Salvation is a position, but it's also a process that God's working in us. He's changing us. He's weaving us together as believers. He's conforming us each and totally to the image of Jesus. He's making us like Jesus, a beautiful work of art. This is something that, again, is not just about okay, I'm going to choose to do this. It is a free gift. There is a choice involved. But this is something that that God does. It's a supernatural work that God does in us. Again, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Old things are passed away. Some of us are so, so much of a slave to our past to the sins that we've done or the sins that have been done against us. We're such a slave to to life not being what we wanted it to be. We forget about this great gift of salvation, this work that God says, you're a new creation and I am weaving in your life something so beautiful that when you see the finished product, you're going to fall on your face and say, Lord, all glory be to your name. There's never been, and there never will be, anyone disappointed in heaven. Do you really think when this is over, when God's finished the work that He began in you, that when you face Him, you're going to go, is this it? Well, hey, God, you're bigger than I thought. I mean, is that really what you think is going to happen? The creator of the universe adopts you into His family, gives you the very righteousness of His Son, starts a work in you that He promises to finish, and you think that finished work is going to be dull? Incomplete? No, it's going to be glorious. All things passing away. Behold, all things becoming new. And listen, guys, it's it's not just the fact that you're a new creation. God gives you a new purpose right now. When you receive this gift by faith, you have a new purpose. And it's not just some sort of nice idea. Again, look at verse 10. He says, For You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, notice, which God prepared beforehand. God knows the things that he he wants you to do. Now, now here's where we get a bit confused, okay? Especially especially some of you younger people, but I I find the older we get, we still are wondering. We're always wondering, what's God's plan for my life? And we're waiting for this big, dynamic thing, Maybe that's not God's plan for your life. Maybe the good works that God's created for you to do are simply to be the best employee you can be, or the best parent, or the best neighbor. 
Maybe God's plan for you is, is something that is less dramatic or impressive than you thought. But, but here's what we can know for sure. These are good works, God says, that He's prepared for us to do. They're good works. You can jot these down. Three reasons why they're good. They're good because the works are commanded by a good God. God's already tells us that Jesus told us the general sort of thrust of the good works God's given us to. He's called us to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those, in a nutshell, those are the good works that He's called us to. He's a good God. He's called us to that thing. I mean, think about this, guys. How many of us, how many of you have longed to have a purpose in your life that just cannot be thwarted? Something bigger than yourself, something bigger than the mundane every day. Do you know what that something is? It's loving God. It's knowing the God that has so loved you first. That's your purpose. That's why you exist. He's a good God. And you know why God calls us to love Him? God doesn't call us to love Him so that He will love us in return. No, He calls us to love Him so that we will understand how much He first loves us. That's why. It's amazing how often we as Christians deceive ourselves in thinking, you know what, I don't really want to obey until I understand. It's like we don't realize that it's, no, don't you realize in obedience is when you understand. (laughs) It's actually doing what God's called you to do that you actually understand why He's so good in calling you to that. So they're good works because they're commanded by a good God, but also they're good works because they benefit other people. They benefit other people. You know, so many times over the last, I guess I've been in ministry for 26 years. So many times in the last 26 years, people have come to me and said, you know what, I joined such and such a team and I'm just, I'm not getting anything out of it. So what are you doing for that team? Well, I'm moving the boxes here or there, or I'm making the coffees, or I'm helping with the Sunday school. I'm not getting anything out of it. Well, it ain't for you. It's for others. Is it only good if you like it? Think how many, think how many children would be murdered if, if you know, parenting was only about you getting something good out of it. <laughs> I'm being morbid on purpose because it's ridiculous. Why would we think good just means good for me? Well, because that's part of our sinfulness. No, they're good works because they benefit other people. That's the second thing. Third thing, they're good news. They're good works because they demonstrate good news. God's prepared good works for us because He wants us not just to say, we believe in Jesus and you should believe in Jesus too, but He wants us to, to show this is how good our Jesus is. What we're, we, what we're wanting to do for you is only what He's first done for us and what He continues to do for us. Demonstrates the good news. It's not just a nice idea. It's a new purpose. This is what God saves us to. We're not saved by our works, but we're definitely saved for good works. God saves us to do these good things so that we can know God through these, uh, through these good works and so that others can know God through these good works. Lastly, the last thing he says in verse 10 is, God's prepared these works before him. Notice that we should walk in them. Not just understand them, not just recognize them, but walk in them. Do you, do you understand this? That understanding without action is actually deception. 
Did you know that? I'll say it again. Understanding without action is deception. This is what the scripture says. Listen to this. The Bible says in the book of James, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 2, verse 17, James commands, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Faith by itself, if if it is not accompanied by action, is, is dead. It's dead. If, if you're coming to servants and you're going, oh, just, yeah, tell me something I don't know. I want to learn new stuff. Stimulate me intellectually. And you're not willing to do or act upon what you hear. You know what's happening? You're deceiving yourself. You might get more information about God, but you're not getting any closer to God. In fact, the more we hear what God has to say and not respond to God, the harder our heart is getting towards God. Does that mean you should, shouldn't listen to so much Bible study? No. It means we should learn to respond to it. God, I'm gonna, I, wanna, I want you to develop faith in me because I want to trust you. I want to grab on to this, this free gift that you give me in Christ. I want to hold tightly to it. And I do that by faith, and it's faith that actually works itself out. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 15, He says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you, notice, and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. In that great chapter, John 15, when Jesus is talking about abiding, standing in that connected relationship with God through Christ, abiding in Christ, he says, here's why I chose you, that you would be fruitful. Do you know why a tree grows fruit? It's not for the tree. It's for others. Fruit, by definition, has its seed in itself. So that what happens is a a fruit-bearing plant or tree grows, the fruit gets ripe, it falls, an animal of some kind or human eats that fruit and then deposits the seed somewhere else. I guess what happens? A new thing grows. Fruit is for others to benefit and for reproduction to take place the process can continue. Jesus says, listen, I've chose you for this end, to be fruitful. I've given you a gift of salvation. Work that salvation out. Use this great gift that I've given you. Oh, but I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. It's so valuable. What am I messing up? You're going to mess it up. (laughs) But you know what's so great about the gift? You can't break it. It's like this unbreakable thing. <laughs> I think that's why so many people struggle. I think that's why so many of us Christians can become religious. We put on an act. We have a form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof. We put on, a, we put on an act. We, we want to act like we're doing the Christian thing. You know why? We're afraid to get it wrong. We're afraid other people are going to think we're going to get it wrong. Who's ever got it perfectly right other than Jesus? How can that be an excuse for us not to work, not to use this great free gift, this access to God that we have, this presence of God that we have by His Spirit in our lives, this future of with God that we have because of Christ's finished work? How can we not utilize that? How can we not share that? This is why God saved you. Why did God get your attention, call you to believe, and leave you here? If we're going to spend eternity with God, I would like that eternity to start right now, please. That would be nice. No more sickness, death, pain. Can't I just receive Christ as my Savior and boop, go right to heaven? That would be nice. 
Why doesn't he do that? Because that's not what he's appointed you to. He's appointed you to bear fruit so that we can bring as many people to heaven with us as possible. In fact, he wants us to understand, guys, this walk is a walk with Jesus and it's a walk for Jesus. That's why the Great Commission says this, go and make disciples of all nations. And then it says, Jesus says, go make disciples. And he also says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus isn't just saying, well, I'll see you you later when you're raptured or when you die, whatever comes first. And I'll I'll see you later, but um, until then, kind of just stay busy. No, he says, we, we have work to do together. And it's not a work to have a relationship with me. It's a work that flows from a relationship with me. That's what salvation is.